0: read here verses 1 through 18 i want to say thank you last week to pastor johnny for filling in and uh, continuing our series here counterculture living but uh, matthew chapter 6 verses 1 through 18 if we could look at that please the bible says take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them otherwise ye have no reward of your father which is in heaven Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest thine alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. When thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which seeth in secret. And thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom. And the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as hypocrites of a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward." But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Today I want to talk about this subject and ask this question about your service for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a simple question. What is your motivation? What is your motivation let's pray together father thank you for this blessed time we have to search thy word i pray that you'd help us to understand fully uh, what you have for us here today and we pray this in jesus name amen as a reminder of where we are in our study here which is called counterculture living we're actually walking through the sermon on the mount this sermon as we find it in the pages of scriptures covers matthew 5 6 and 7 The sermon began with the introduction known as the Beatitudes, but now we're coming to the meat of the sermon. In fact, we've been there, this meat of the sermon, the crux of what Jesus is trying to get across. But it's quite interesting as now we've moved from verses 17 to 48 to now chapter 6, there is a little bit of a contrast in the material. From verses 17 to 48 of chapter number 5, Jesus is dealing with false teaching. In fact, he's dealing with a false teaching that is about the law. But in the text that I've read to you today in chapter 6 verses 1 through 18, Jesus is not dealing with false teaching, but he's dealing with a false religiousness, a hypocrisy that has shown up in the leader's. And I want you to know something, that as Jesus comes to chapter 6, this is not a new subject. Jesus is not introducing a new topic. He's actually continuing this whole theme of the righteousness that we have ought to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now, Jesus is not preaching a good work salvation. He's not saying, look, if you're this good, you can make it to heaven. What Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, that your righteousness ought to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees is this, that when you get saved, there should be a difference in your life. Is that not true in what Paul said in the book of Corinthians? He said, look, he said, the day that I got saved, I became a new man. Old things passed away, and behold, all things are become new. So if you're sitting in the pews here today and you say, well, preacher, I've had some type of religious experience. Yeah, I've been born again. You know, I I prayed some prayer. But if that prayer did not change your life, then you don't have the same salvation that the Bible talks about. The Bible is clear that when a man is born again, he has a new life in Christ. And that is going to show forth the righteousness that now comes forth from that life is different than the dry religion of the Pharisees and the scribes. And how interesting in verses 17 to 48 that as he talks about this false teaching, he's comparing it with the relationship we have with everybody else. Oh, we ought not to commit adultery. We ought not to be angry. We ought to make sure that we have these things lined up because that righteousness shows up in the relationships with other people. But now in the text that we come to today, it is not in the relationship with everyone else. But it has to do with our relationship with God. And I think the crux of what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, is this Don't try to impress people with your relationship with God. Isn't that amazing in churches all across the United States? People come in and they think that either how they act, what they do, what they say, Oh, it'll impress deacon so-and-so. Oh, the preacher will notice me. But I'm telling you, in this text here today, Jesus is thrusting this whole scenario, and it is this, that you ought not to impress others with your relationship with God. How amazing it is that people may do the right things, but for the wrong motives. We can do all the right things, that is, serve God and worship God, But we can do them from a carnal standpoint and for the wrong reasons, and that is to improve our status before everybody else. Now, Jesus is not condemning any act of public worship. We're doing that here today. But he's saying here that if our relationship with God depends on what everybody else sees and what everybody else thinks, then I'm telling you, you're looking for the glory of man, not the glory of God. And both motives according to this, very interesting, have the reward. If you do things to impress other people, how interesting it says after each thing, you have your reward. But if you do things for God and you do it for Him alone, someday you'll stand before God and you'll receive that beautiful reward. Let me talk here for just a moment in regards to this aspect about pursuing God not to impress other people. Again, it's, 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 impo- it's possible for you and I to engage in all the right behaviors to try to know and love God and completely miss the point. Because if the goal is our behavior and what everybody else thinks, then I'm telling you, you've missed the point. So I'm asking this question to you. What is your motive in serving Jesus Christ? I read a cute little story some time ago about an elderly man was on a beach, and he found this magic lamp, and as you well know, he rubbed it, and this genie came out, and the genie said, you freed me. I want to make you a wish. So the man thought for just a moment, and he said, my brother and I had a fight 30 years ago, and he hasn't spoken to me since. I really wish he'd forgive me. Oh boy, there was a thunderclap, and the genie declared, your wish has been granted. The genie kind of scratches temple for just a moment. He said, you know, he said, most men ask for wealth or fame, but you only wanted the love of your brother. Is it because you're old and dying? No way, the man cried out. But my brother is, and he's worth $60 million. Well, I want to tell you something. In this section of Scripture, Jesus gives us three areas of service that has to do with our relationship with God. In verses 1 through uh, uh, verse 4, it has to do with almsgiving. In verses 5 through 15, it is a subject of prayer. And in verses 16 to 18, it has to do with fasting. And in every one, Jesus presses the point of our motivation. What is your motivation? So let's get into point number one. First of all, verses 1 through 4, the issue of almsgiving. Now, if we're going to talk about almsgiving, I think it's important for us to understand what that is. Well, simply put, almsgiving is this. It is the giving of money or goods to help those in need. Now, we have as a church here what we call a benevolence fund. And oftentimes, when we hear of a need, we will try to help partially meet that need as best as we can. When you look through our King James Bible, there are nine times that the word alms is used, and we see it actually used four times right in this text that we read. But as you scour the rest of Scripture, it's interesting to see how almsgiving was very important. When you come to Acts chapter 9, there is a dear lady who had passed away and they eulogized her and made mention of the fact that she was a woman full of alms deeds. Acts chapter 3, John and Peter are coming to the temple and there is a man that has been laid there who is lame and is not able to walk and he begins asking alms of John and Peter. So no doubt as you look through Scripture, it is important that you and I give to those in need, no matter whether we call it almsgiving or, or benevolence or simply just giving to the poor. But the issue is not the giving, it is how we give. And so therefore, as we walk through these three major points, here's what I'm going to show you today. Jesus shares with us the wrong motive of serving Him, But then he doesn't leave us hanging. He shows us the right motive. So let's look at the wrong motive of almsgiving. Notice right off the bat in verse number one, here's the wrong motive. To be seen of men. To be seen of men. In fact, he gives an analogy in verse number two of someone sounding a trumpet to announce what they're doing. Now, could this be where we get the phrase tooting your own horn? I don't know. I kind of think so. But whatever you call it, Jesus talked about this analogy of somebody sounding the horn. But look a little bit further in verse number three. He says, they're doing this as the hypocrites do in the synagogue, that they may have glory of men. Think about that for just a moment. The word glory, what does that mean? Well, glory means to give proper weight to something when one recognizes the value of it. So when we talk about giving glory to God, we actually talk about giving God His proper worth and value because of who He really is. Well, when people go out and sound a trumpet, if you will, let everybody else know their giving. Well, look how I gave this money to help this person in need. And look how I put this in the offering plate to help this particular need. It is as if this person is saying, look at me and how valuable I am and what I've given to this particular cause. Now, what does all this mean? Do people really try to serve the Lord and give to impress others? others well if you're gonna say no for just me you haven't been around church for a long time people will give to the poor in a way that will draw attention to themselves people will give so they're noticed there are those that will give to get a reward There are those that will give to get acknowledgement by others. There are those who will give to get the special attention from that person that is taking up the offering to know that they are special. Maybe people give because they want their name put on the wall. How sad it is that people will often give in order to get, to get publicity or to get respect from other people. And I want to tell you something here today, that when you give for yourself, you're doing it in the wrong way. This is not to say that if you get noticed for giving, that it's wrong. What Jesus is prompting here, what he's discussing is, it is your motive in how you do it. And notice the results. When you and I give with the wrong motive, then we actually get what we're looking for. We'll get the thanks from the recipient. We'll get our name listed there on the wall of donors. But that's it. Jesus is basically saying, if you're doing it for the recognition, for the accolades of everybody else, you'll get your reward here, but that's it. You have your reward. But notice the right motive. Two things I want you to see here. Jesus talks about, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing in verse number three. But verse number four, he puts it this way, give in secret. You see, the right way that Jesus says to give to the poor or to a particular cause is that you give in secret. Your giving should be so secret that it couldn't possibly impress anybody else because they don't even know. In fact, Jesus uses a little analogy to give us a point to help us see this. He said, your giving should be so secret that your right hand does not know what your left hand is doing. Martin Luther put it so well. He said, we should give with singleness of heart. And that means that the heart is not ostentatious or desirous of getting honor and reputation, reputation from it, but is moved to contribute freely regardless of whether it makes an impression and gains the praise of people or whether everyone despises and profanes it. I think Martin Luther got it right. But notice here now, verses 1 through 4, that's the almsgiving. Jesus gives us the wrong motive, the right motive in helping meet needs. But now notice verses 5 to 15, the issue of prayer. The issue of prayer. Now all of us know what prayer is. If we were to give a simple definition of prayer, we would say prayer is simply talking to God. It is one of the basic components of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. But the question is this. When you come and you pray in a public forum, Maybe you're invited to pray in front of a class, maybe here at the pulpit, or maybe in a small group as you pray. What is your motive in praying? Well, again, Jesus gives, first of all, the wrong motive. The wrong motive is this, verse number five, he says, there are those that are giving to be seen of men. In fact, he calls these people hypocrites. Jesus signifies these people that are giving this way as hypocrites because they want people to see how spiritual they really are. They're pretending to be something that they're not. Oh, this person that comes and prays in the public square, where does he go? He goes to the street corner where all the business is taking place. He goes to the synagogue where all the religious people are walking by. and go. Oh, did you notice so-and-so praying right over there? Oh, did you know so-and-so right at the door? He was kneeling down and praying. Now, this doesn't mean somebody cannot pray in public. We open our services in prayer. We close our services in prayer. We'll get together in small groups. But again, the question is, are you talking to God or are you talking to other men through God? What's your motivation? Well, he says in verse number 5, it's to be seen him But notice verse number 7, he says here that some are praying using vain repetitions. What does he mean by that? There's a repetitiveness. He talks about here in verse number 7 about not praying as the heathen do. Boy, it seems like Jesus is just kind of cutting right at the knees here. Praying like the heathen? What are the heathen? Well, the heathen really are people that are considered pagans, non-Jews they have no relationship with God. So when they come and pray, they're praying using all these big words, they're saying all these things, they're repeating these things without having any sense of a relationship with God because they're just simply heathen. And what Jesus is saying is, don't pray like them. Why? Because you have a relationship with God, your Father in heaven, and pray like you're talking to someone that you have a dynamic relationship with. But I love this about the vain repetitions. I think we all understand meaningless prayers, rote prayers. Prayers. Those are prayers that are given where the words, sure, they have some meaning, but the heart and the mind are no longer engaged, and so these things are repeated thoughtlessly. Now, I honestly believe I don't think it's anything wrong to say, and we're going to look in just a moment at this prayer given here, what we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer, and I'm going to say that, uh, something about that in a minute. And I'm not saying that's wrong for us to pray, but I know of churches that will pray this on a weekly basis. And again nothing wrong with with praying this prayer but many times it is repeated without thinking what we're praying oh is the prayer good absolutely jesus gave it but when we repeat it so often and we don't even think about what we're saying it's almost like prayers like now i lay me down to sleep i pray the lord my soul to keep and if i should just die before i wake i pray the lord my soul to take how many of you prayed that with your kids no don't raise your hand i'm sorry how about this one before you eat god is great god is good now we thank him for this food many of you are have grown up in churches been part of places where you prayed and were taught formal prayers or some type of prayer to say at particular occasions but i want to remind you something when jesus talks about vain repetitions what he's saying is you've got to be careful here about praying a prayer that may seem as a vain repetition. Oh, you may It may start off good, it may be repeated often, but again, your mind and your heart are no longer engaged and that type of prayer really becomes worthless. In verse number 7, Jesus challenges a type of prayer that thinks it can merit a hearing from God given the right uh, statistics. In other words, maybe if I pray long enough, if I pray intensely enough, if I pray the right words, if I repeat these words, then God will answer my prayer. And I want to tell you something, prayer is not a technique. Oh sure, there's certain facets to learn about prayer, but I'm going to just tell you something. When I was dating my wife, nobody had to teach me how to talk to my wife. I wanted to talk to her. And I expressed to her what was on my heart, and she did the same. And because we loved one another and we had a relationship with one another, we came and we spent that time together. That's the way talking is to God. That's the way prayer is. Not repeating these prayers. I don't mean to pick on him, but Brother Zapula back there, Brother Pete, I love it. He was coming, he called me one day. He said, Pastor, he says, I want to know how to pray. He says, I sit in this group and I hear this person pray. And I think to myself, I can't pray after that person. Then I hear this person pray and I'm not sure really how to pray because, boy, they seem they've got it all down. And can God hear a man from Brooklyn? He said, I'm just going to speak my Brooklynese. I said, God hears Brooklynese, brother. He hears it. You come to God just as you are and God will hear you. Jesus gives the wrong motive here. But notice now the right motive. Verse number six. Look at this. He says go into your closet. Again, it does not mean that you cannot pray out in public. But I think what Jesus is getting at is this that if you have a motive of wanting to oppress other people you are probably ought to quit praying in front of other people and get into the bathroom get into the back room of your house and spend time with god so again does it mean that it's improper for us to pray in public or with other people not at all jesus prayed in public The apostles were gathered together when Peter was in prison, and they were praying together. The church, the early church, held prayer meetings together. But again, it's our proper purpose in prayer that is the important factor. Get in the habit of praying in public. Get in the habit. But notice, not only does he say here, get into your closet, but I want you to notice we're to be specific in our praying. Again, repetition in and of itself is not what is being condemned here because we read in the Scripture, did not Paul pray three times? And probably it meant multiple times he prayed here for his thorn to be removed. If you read Psalm 136, you find in all 26 verses here, for his mercy endureth forever, a repeated phrase. So again, Jesus is not condemning the repeated phrase. He is condemning here the mindless Repetition of that. But I think Jesus adds an interesting thought to this when he says here that your Father, notice in verse number eight, your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. Now, a lot of people read that who maybe are newly saved and say, well, wait a minute, why does God want me to pray, anyways? I mean, if God already knows the need, God already knows what he's going to do, why spend the effort and the energy to go ahead and pray? You know what praying does? Praying does two things. Number one, praying brings me to an acknowledgement that I need him. I hope you get this in your life. You can't run this life alone. You need help. And the best help in all this world is the help that God provides. And so therefore, when you pray, yes, God knows what you're praying already. God already knows the need. God already knows the solution. But he's asking you to come because it's an acknowledgement of you as a frail human being before an infinite being and acknowledging his help. But I think as we come, we're coming in this relationship aspect. It's a relationship. Notice how Jesus begins his prayer. Look at this. Verse 9, what are the two first words of the prayer? Our Father. Would you say those two words with me? Our Father. Interesting. He doesn't start off and say, Lord. Some lofty thing, he, he comes and builds off of the relationship. You're saved here today. You're a child of God. You have a relationship with the heavenly Father in heaven. And there you are being able to come on this earth right to the throne of grace to seek His help in time of need, our Father. Now this prayer is an interesting prayer. It's commonly been referred to as the Lord's Prayer. But I want to go ahead and say to you that the Lord's Prayer is actually found in John chapter 13 where Jesus prays before the Father in heaven. What this is given here in Matthew chapter 6 is actually should be called the disciples' prayer. You say, well, preacher, is it really a big deal? Well, let me just tell you something. This is not the Lord's prayer because the Lord had no debts to be forgiven of. The Lord had no sins to be confessed. The Lord had no wrongs to be righted before the Father. And so therefore, this is a model prayer that Jesus gave the disciples, not necessarily to be repeated mindlessly, but as an example, as a model of how to pray. And so what is this prayer all about? First of all, notice, I'm going to give you just four things. Recognize who God is. Notice again, the prayer begins with our Father. But then he begins, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We start talking about God's holiness. Now I want to encourage you as you come before God, before you start coming with your laundry list of requests, you ought to come acknowledging who God is. You say, well, how do I know who God is? That's when you get in the word of God, when you get into the word of God and you study the word of God, you get to know God and you'll begin recounting to the Lord his great mercy, his loving kindness, his grace, all of these beautiful things about God and you recognize who he is. But secondly, then we come, we'll reveal our needs. He says in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread so sad today, it seems like our daily needs are met by MasterCard and Visa. And hardly a person ever goes to God and asks them, Lord, would you provide for this little need? God, would you provide for this? Because we go back to our financial God that we have credit with. And oh, how much we need in this country for us to come back to where every day we're acknowledging God. God. I've often told this story. My mother-in-law, when I would drive her around sometimes, she'd pray for a parking space. remember the first time I heard that, I thought, that is dumb. I mean, come on, there's plenty of parking spaces. She'd say, Lord, Lord, give us a parking space right up front, and sure enough, the Lord will provide one. Finally, one day I said, Mom, keep praying. Keep praying. Ask the Lord for those parking spaces. But it might be that you need have a need this month. You're falling short. You know what God wants? He wants for you to acknowledge Him, to come to Him. Notice here, repentance of sin. This is an aspect of being honest with God about ourselves. God wants you to be honest before Him. Too many prayers are just simply lofty prayers. Oh, just praying this prayer and asking the Lord for this. But I'm telling you, God wants you to come and confess sin, but then request deliverance. Deliver us from evil. Verse number 13. Lead us not into temptation. So if you want to know how to pray, look at verses 9 through 13 and follow that as a model. Use it as a model. But now let me get into the last issue, and that is in verses 16, 17, and 18. It's the issue of fasting. I think just like almsgiving, it's probably pretty important that we define fasting and give some biblical context to this. Fasting is intentionally abstaining from food and sometimes even drink for a specified time to serve a spiritual purpose. Let me give that definition again. Fasting is intentionally abstaining from food and sometimes even drink for a specified time to serve a spiritual purpose. Now, if you walk through Scripture, you'll see a number of people fasting in Scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah fasted because she was in mourning over a great need. Esther, in the book of Esther, called upon her uncle Mordecai and the people of Israel to fast as she was coming to a crisis in her life that would affect her and all of the people of Israel. And she said, we need to fast before God. Daniel... Had a very difficult matter, and what did he do? Not just prayed, he fasted and prayed. Fasting is connected to repentance and a return to God, Joel chapter 2. The apostles fasted and worshipped before sending men out for their new ministry, Acts chapter 13 and verse 14. Fasting is an expression of humbling yourself before God. Now, here's what fasting is. It is this idea of putting aside the need of the physical to heighten the need of the spiritual. I want to tell you, living in this body as we do, we are consumed with meeting the physical needs. The physical needs of pleasure, the physical needs of hunger, the physical need of being weary and getting some rest, And we're constantly in this mindset of the physical, meeting all that. But God has saved us and woken our spirit to the fact that there are great spiritual needs. And oh, how often for us to come to the place to recognize those spiritual needs, if we stop eating for a period of time and stop drinking for a period of time, we come to a place where we are cognizant of those great spiritual needs in our life. I've heard many people say, well, fasting's not in the New Testament. It's just something relegated to the Old Testament. I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse number 16. Moreover, when ye fast. doesn't sound like Jesus is coming in and saying, all right, that was Old Testament now. Now we're going off to something new. No, Jesus recognized the importance and the value of people fasting before God. But again, as Jesus talks about the subject of fasting, Here's the wrong motive. Jesus again calls this motive very hypocritical. In fact, they're pretending to worship God so that other people can see how spiritual they are. So how do they do this? Well, the Bible says they disfigure their faces. The word disfigure is a very interesting word. It means to actually hide or cover. So what these religious leaders would do is they would cover their faces with dirt and ash and would wear dirty clothing in order to appear before people as they're fasting. Oh, don't you feel so bad for me? I've been fasting for five days, and look at me as I'm coming before God. Look at how spiritual I am. They disfigure themselves. Well, Jesus said there's a right motive. What is that? Well, he says anoint your head. Wash your face. In other words, can I just put it this way? act normal. Act normal. Don't appear before other people that you're famished and that you're going through this crisis in your life so you can be spiritual and appear spiritual before other people. Just act normal. Anointing the head with oil and washing the face were normal things that these Israelites would do before going out the door. But notice he said, fast and secret. Fast and secret. Here in verse number 18, thy father which is in secret, so he'll reward thee openly. doesn't mean that people may not notice. I have fasted from time to time, and I've joined other people for lunch and have just refrained, but I've not gone into a big deal. People may have noticed that I've been fasting, but the motive is important. Do you put yourself before others to let them think that you're spiritual? As I conclude today, Jesus' point in these 18 verses was not really to scold his audience because they weren't giving enough or praying enough or fasting enough. Jesus assumed that everybody was interested in following God, and therefore as they follow God, that they would give to help up the needs that were around them. Jesus understood that, uh, or assumed, that the people that he spoke to would understand that prayer was the lifeblood of a person in a relationship with God. Jesus assumed, again, about his audience that they knew about fasting. Yes, fasting was associated with the day of atonement and, and all those other things, but they were going to come before God and fast so they could recognize the spiritual aspect of their lives. So nowhere in this passage is Jesus telling us here, all right, I'm going to tell you something, you got to give more, you got to pray more, you got to fast more. Jesus was castigating the motive of the religious leaders. And Jesus was looking at his audience and saying, you can follow that righteousness or you can take the righteousness that I give you Let it flow out of your heart and be sure that what you do for the Lord Jesus Christ is not for the glory of men, not to be seen of others, but that you do these things for the sole purpose of the glory of God. Doing it for the right reasons. And what is that great reason? It's God Himself. If you look through these 18 verses that I've read, you'll notice that the title Father is used 10 times. Verse 1, verse 4, twice in verse number 6, verse number 8, verse 9, verse 14, verse 15, twice in verse 18. Our Father. That is, God is the focus, not us. How sad. That we come in and we're the focus. Oh, look at how much I gave. Oh, look at me, how I'm fasting. Oh, look at me as I'm praying over here. And look at, listen to the lofty words that I'm using. Now, if you serve so you can be noticed by other people, you have your reward. It's here. But I want to serve Jesus. And I want to serve my Father for His glory for his glory. So the question I have to you today, what is your motive? What's your motive for serving God? What's your motive for being a greeter? What's your motive for doing special music? What's your motive for teaching the word of God in a class? What's your motive for being here today? What is your motive for conducting your life as you do? What is your motive? Father, I pray that you'd help us today as we conclude this time with an invitation, invite people to make decisions based upon what they hear. I ask, Lord, that each person today would evaluate their life and follow you. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, please nobody looking. It's very important today that as we conclude this, that you really evaluate your life. I did not preach today for the sake of just giving information, though today you may have learned something. Many of you have heard me say from time to time, I don't preach for information alone, I preach for transformation. And I desire for people to come to know God. And today you might be here and you say, well, preacher, you've been talking about Christians and how, how they ought to serve God. Really, I haven't been in church a whole lot, and I'm, I'm just kind of here. I'm observing things, and, and uh, I, I really don't know if I'm a Christian yet. I, I, don't, I don't know Jesus as my Savior. In fact, if I were to die, I don't know if I'd go to heaven. I want to encourage you today that you can come to Jesus, but you've got to come on Jesus' terms. You cannot come with all of your good things and say, well, look at what I've done. I've been a good neighbor. I've been a good employee. I have given to the church even though I've not attended a whole lot. I've raised a good family. I've not murdered anybody. I've not done any of these wild things out in society. And you might say, well, God surely will accept me. You know, in Luke chapter 18, there was a wonderful analogy that Jesus gave. And I want to give this to you right now. Jesus spoke about two different people who prayed. One person who prayed, he said, Lord, he said, I'm glad that I'm not like these other people, this publican. I'm glad that I haven't stolen money from others. And he began sharing all the things that he did. Boy, this prayer was nothing but pride. And this man, a simple man, prayed and he said, Lord, Be merciful to me, a sinner. You realize that's how simple it is for you to acknowledge God as your Savior? You need to acknowledge who you are, a sinner. You need to acknowledge your sin can't get you to heaven. But Jesus was good enough. He was perfect. He died for you. And He extends the offer of eternal life if you would take it. Would you take it here today? How many would be here today and say, Preacher, I'm not saved, but I'd like to be saved? By uplifted hand right now, would you say, Preacher, just by uplifted hand, nobody's looking right now. Preacher, I'm not saved, but I'd like to be saved. Anyone today? I'd just like to hold out. God bless you. Anyone else here today? One person raised his hand and said, I'd like to be saved. I'd, I'd like to just lead you right now in a public prayer. Please understand there's no magic in these words. It has to be prayed from the heart. The Bible says that if a person will confess with their mouth, that's the praying part, and believe in their heart, this has to be something that's from you. So I'd like to lead you in this prayer. And maybe if you haven't raised your hand, you might pray it to yourself right now. While I pray it out in short phrases, why don't you say it after me to yourself. Here's the prayer. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I cannot save myself. But I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sin. Right now, I'm asking Jesus Christ, God's Holy Son, to forgive me of all my sin and become my personal Savior. In Jesus' name I ask this. If you just prayed that prayer right now, I'd like you to just look right up here. Just look right at me. You prayed that prayer. I want to say that the best decision you've ever made is to receive Christ as your Savior. What a great decision.